Yeah. Okay. Uh, Before we sing, uh, maybe I can relieve your mind a little bit and so you can sing better. Uh, How many of you are prepared to write the whole passage that I gave you? Raise your hands high. We're we're to really appreciate you folks. All right, you see what we have here. (laughs) Now, I didn't plan this. I didn't do this to trick you. I really did intend to give you the little test. But I'm afraid it's going to sort of be a waste of time if there are going to be a bunch of blank papers and a bunch of, you know, whatever. So I hope you folks that did it are are glad you did it <laughs> and with the motivation I gave you. I really did intend to have it. In fact, I have the paper right here. But people have been coming to me and saying this is a very busy week. They didn't have time. And so I'm going to honor that, and we're not going to write it out. <clears throat> we'll take the time uh, with the lesson. I knew you could sing better if we got that out of the way. <laughs> okay. And like I said, those of you who worked hard, please forgive me. I didn't do this on purpose, and I hope you are glad you memorized it anyway. Okay, <clears throat> be thou faithful unto death. <clears throat> we'll sing it twice like we've been singing it. <clears throat> no, be thou sang that text, like I said, to a beautiful piece of choral music when I was 21, so that's almost uh, 55 years ago, and that has been a challenge to me, just that little text, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Okay, let's do, let's do, uh, go down through this uh, memory passage. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. According as he hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off 
and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is one of the outstanding passages of Scripture. By all means, if you didn't get it memorized this week, I'd like to make you promise you will memorize it, but I don't want to make people lie. So, I, You know, the Quakers don't do much singing. Do you know why? They have observed that people do a lot of lying when they sing. They say, um, I take my silver and my gold, not a mite, would I withhold, and then they hold on with all their might. You know, I always smile. I always smile when I read the title for that song in the hymnal, Take My Life and Let It Be. Ah. Oh. <laughs> I think some people would like to sing it just like that title says it. Take my life and let it be. Anyway, are we saying, fully surrendered, Lord divine, I will be true to thee. I will go with thee all the way. All of that bidding will obey. Really? If we would just live what we sing, uh, I think we'd just all go home. Okay. Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful day. I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful message we have just heard. And I pray, Lord, that we would indeed always remember that we are not as spiritual as we think we are. Forgive us, Lord, for our projections of super spirituality and little formulas that we promise to people that will make them giants in the faith. Help us, Lord, to realize that only by your grace will be, we be anything, and only by the help of many other people will we even succeed. And so I just pray, bless us today as we open your word. Speak to us. Speak to us in the deepest part of our being where it will begin to have major changes in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I also was thinking of Philippians chapter 1. I used to read that and Paul said, I'm sure you're going to make it. I'm sure you're going to finish what Christ completed. And I used to read that and think, well, I wish I knew what's the secret here that Paul is so confident. Well, if you read that passage, what Paul is saying is, in one way or another, you're in it with me and I'm in it with you and you are partakers of my grace. So Paul was saying, my confidence that you people are going to finish successfully is because you are not doing it by yourself. You're doing it, we're all doing this together. So I, I, couldn't do, I couldn't give a more hearty amen to what was said. Uh, please uh, keep that in mind. <clears throat> okay, so we have uh, just a little recap here. <clears throat> uh, put, possess your potential. You have just gone down through those, some of those remarkable resources. Uh, in fact, you went down through all of them. <clears throat> uh, just, I mean, all of heaven is behind you. And he says, if you're not careful, you will forget that you were purged from your old sins and that there's another master there. You will forget that. And your success is to remember that and to know that you have a choice to make. And when you make that choice so that all of heaven can support the choice, you'll get the support of all of heaven to succeed in that choice. But you have to remember because you're going to have doubts and you're going to say, oh, I don't know, I, I seem so weak, I don't think I can do this, oh my, this is hard, nobody else. You're going to think all those negative thoughts. But what you're to remember is that if you make the decision God wants you to make, all of that that I just described will go into effect and you will succeed. You need to remember that. 
It's, that old master is dead. There is a new master there, and there's a, a whole heaven of resources behind every good choice you make that God can support. And that is very important, because we forget that. And that's why Peter is saying, remember, 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 remember. All through this book, he's t- calling us to remember these very practical, supernaturally powerful realities that we can experience. <clears throat> and so then, he goes to a very important part, and that is in order for us to really make any progress, we have to have a proper view of Christ. If we minimize his divinity or his humanity, we're headed for trouble, okay? And as I told you, most of us believe it's important to believe in his divinity, and I say amen to that a thousand times, but we forget the importance of knowing that he was human. And people who have minimized that, what they do is they say, I can't be like Jesus because he wasn't like me. And the Anabaptists understood that, and they placed a peculiar emphasis on the humanity of Christ, which I told you used to perplex me when I read their writings. Why are they emphasizing this aspect of Christ? They understood that that was very important to any realistic concept of discipleship. If you can say, Jesus was not like me, I cannot be like him, that just undercuts the whole concept of discipleship. So we have to believe in both. And so that's back to the facts. And then we did let the hearer beware. We talked about the danger of false prophets, why the Bible says that the false prophet is the tail, not the serial murderer, not the serial adulterer, which that's horrible sin, to be sure, but the false teacher will send thousands to perdition. He is much more dangerous than those other people. And that's why the Bible says the ancient and honorable man, he's the head, and the man, the prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. That's the dregs of society right at the bottom. And this is very important. You should labor hard and honestly to be right in the things you teach. And James, uh, yeah, James says it's, it's a ter- terrific responsibility to be a teacher. Because he said teachers are going to be held more accountable. And I'm telling you why. Because they have the ability to send many people to success and many people to, to, to perdition. And this is very important. Young men, I hope every one of you is a teacher. But please, make sure that you're not teaching things that the gospel does not clearly teach us. And there have been many teachers that have done that and have sent many people, I think, to hell. The the most damnable teaching, I think, that was ever concocted is that you can get a ticket to heaven and then you're good to go no matter what happens after that. There must be millions in hell from that damnable heresy, which is a popular concept. We'll talk maybe a little bit more about that. So false prophets are extremely dangerous, extremely dangerous. And then, of course, we talked about the doom of false prophets, uh, and God will not permit that. He will destroy uh, the false prophet and his followers. And then we had bad character. They're impudently irreverent. I mean, they speak presumptuous, ugly stuff that sounds so irreverent. It's just impudent. They are insatiably immoral. They can never satisfy their immoral urges because I told you that immorality has to have a bigger and bigger thrill to get the same effect. And uh, finally, all they have left is their passions without any uh, thrill at all. 
And the opposite of that is abstinence and fasting and, you know, to increase your sensitivity. I mean, it's just a law. Try it sometime. Fast for three days, and you won't ask for any wonderful food. You'll just ask for some kind of food, just a piece of bread. It tastes delicious. But if you go down the other road, some of us have done some of that, the food has to be more and more exotic <laughs> to get the same satisfaction. So, I mean, it's just a principle. In- insatiably, I put that word in there intentionally. Intentionally ignorant. The Bible says they're willfully ignorant. I mean, there's the information. It's as clear as can be. They could believe it if they wanted to, but they don't want to because they know it will affect their, their behavior. Jesus said, your ears you have closed, lest at any time you be converted. Oh, So you saw where this person was going with his discussion, and you said, oh, if I keep listening to that, I will have to change. That's called intentionally ignorant, okay? Insidiously ill-intentioned. Insidiously means uh, secretly and... uh, I don't quite quite know what word uh, else to use, but what it means is they have an intention to mislead others, Okay? And irredeemably iniquitous. They're a dog returned to its vomit. They're the sow returned to the mud. And I tried to warn you yesterday, almost nobody that does that returns. If they can repent, they will. Don't take Hebrews chapter 4 and despair if if you've done that and you're returning. Because God does forgive every person who repents. That passage says it. They can't be renewed to repentance. That's the problem. If they could be, they would be forgiven. But they, they don't, you can't do it. I, I have any one of a number of people that have done this. And you can talk to your blue in the face, and you can't get them to respond. It's just the law of the soul that we make our decisions. I'm just repeating some things here. We make our decisions. Our decisions make us. And each day that we do the wrong things, our heart becomes harder our thinking becomes more muddy, and the more our desires go in the wrong direction. And when we get out there where we thought we were going to say, Jesus, forgive me on our deathbed, we don't even care. And people don't anticipate that. They think sometime in the future they're going to feel exactly the same way, they're going to be the same person, and they're going to do what they were planning to do. Uh Uh-uh. Every day you become a different person. And when you get there, you won't be the same person. You're presuming. It's the sin God hates is for people to presume. There was no sacrifice for that sin in the Old Testament. That's an awful way to treat God. It's an awful way to treat life. It's an awful way to treat yourself is to presume. So don't presume. Okay. So now, the promise to believe. Let's look at this last chapter. Let me read it, and then we will talk about it. This is a wonderful little epistle. I mean, Peter saw the struggle the church was having with persecution, so he wrote 1 Peter. Then he saw Gnosticism coming in with its idea that Jesus wasn't really fully human and we can't be like him and they were uh, becoming immoral. So he writes this book. And uh, just to make sure we understand the gospel message, through John Mark, he gave us the book of Mark. I mean, Peter did his job (laughs) to prepare the church for persecution, for deception, and for a true understanding of the gospel. Uh, Thank dear Peter. He was a brave and courageous and faithful soul. Okay. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds 
by way of remembrance. Here it is again. He knows we forget that ye may be mindful. There it is. Of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, the first thing he wants us to keep in mind, there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. I mean, things haven't continued as they are. Whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the earth also, and the works that are in them, shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all, all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Oh, that just excites me. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found in him in peace, without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things, these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. I did want to tell you that these two books were the favorite of our Anabaptist forefathers. The first one was an encouragement in the persecution. The second one was a great encouragement against all the people who were accusing them of their beliefs. Uh, so if you look at their writings, you will find these two epistles of the epistles. I think they're more quotes from the Gospels. But of the epistles, these are the most quoted. Okay, So uh, they're, sort of, they're just sort of two precious little epistles that I have really learned to appreciate. Peter knows that life is a battle for right thinking. Someone has said, you are not, it's a little bit like uh, Brother Mick's quote, you are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. Did you get that? You are not what you think you are, but what you think you are. 
All through his epistle, Peter has called for vigorous, pure thinking. I'll just go down through it. The word knowledge. Chapter 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8. Remember, verse 12, verse 13, verse 15. Make known, verse 16. Knowing, verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 12. Understand not. 2, verse 20. Knowledge. 2, verse 21. Knowing. 3, verse 1. Minds. Remembrance. 3, verse 2. Mindful. Verse 3. Knowing. Verse 5. Willingly ignorant. Verse 8, be not ignorant. Verse 17, no. And verse 18, knowledge. I mean, just, this is only an epistle of three little chapters. And all this reference to the way we think or don't think or what we do with our minds. There are 23 references to the mind in these 61 verses. <clears throat> no actions are mindless. I was principal of a school one time and invited a friend to come to speak at the school. And the fad at that time that came straight from the world was to have your sideburns down to here. And here I was, he was walking in, and I was having difficulty with the students with that issue. And here was somebody going to come and give a devotional talk who, was, who, who appeared that way. What do you do? So I called it to his attention. I said, did you notice that you, you have sideburns down here and, you know, the world is doing that and I'm struggling with my... St- oh, he said, are my sideburns that long? Now, come on. <laughs> he stood every morning to shave. But that's what we try to believe. Oh, I really, I didn't think about it. Oh, you must have a problem that you focused on. How many have ever had that response? It's your problem, not mine. Because I didn't even think about it. Come on. No actions are mindless. Everybody gives serious consideration to the decisions. they not, Maybe not always, but especially when it comes to appearance. To say that clothes are not an issue is just a big cop-out. There probably isn't anything that people give more consideration to as to how they're going to appear to other people. Their hair, their clothes. So don't tell me that you didn't think about it. <laughs> I won't believe it. I absolutely will not believe it. <laughs> a lot of thought goes into those things. The Bible says we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And by the way, I want you to see what it says right after that. Would you turn to Romans chapter 8? Or chapter 12, sorry. <clears throat> what is the first evidence of the renewed mind? It's right there. We'll read it. Verse 2, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your minds, that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, here's the first evidence of the renewed mind. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think, see, it has to do with the mind, of himself more highly than he ought to think. So the first evidence of the renewed mind is a realistic appraisal of self. All right? Be renewed in the spirit of your mind, Ephesians 4.23. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians 2, verse 5. Peter 3.2, in this chapter, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So we want to talk about these various aspects of the mind, the decisive mind. Peter now turns to the believers. 
He's obeying Jesus' command. When Jesus said, Peter, when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And like I told you, he pulled out all the stops. He gave us two epistles and a a, a gospel to make sure that the brethren got strengthened. And the first thing he basically tells us in this chapter is make up your mind. Okay? Make up your mind. Strive to have a pure mind. Uncontaminated by the seductive influence of the senses. It's through our senses that our mind becomes messed up. Immanuel Kant, a philosopher I don't agree with, basically gave us one thing that we can think about, and that is that we have a spirit, it's either a small s or a large s, and then we have three parts to our soul, the mind, the will, and the feelings, the emotions. And then this is the body. Now, let me ask you, which of these aspects of the soul does the body have the most influence over? Our emotions. Okay? The bumper sticker says, if it feels good, do it. All right? Now, What happens if we allow our senses to dominate? I told you that we're physical beings and we're spiritual beings. And the physical is temporal and the spiritual is eternal. And that part obviously should dominate and the physical should serve the spiritual. And then things are in the proper order. But when it gets turned around, what happens is the body influences the feelings. And then the feelings influences the mind. And it doesn't really do any thinking at that point. What it does we call rationalization. How many know what I mean by the word rationalization? It's where you reason that what you know is wrong really is right. And we are masters at it. We are the cleverest people in the world when it comes to justifying whatever we want to do. And it's a dangerous thing. And we need to be aware of the fact that we do that. And then the mind... Now that it agrees with the feelings and what the body, the body, the feelings, and the mind now are all in cahoots, it influences the will, and then the will does something wrong. That's the way it works. Okay? So when people start to talk to me about their feelings, I say, I don't want to hear anything about your feelings. I want to hear about what God wants to tell you. Okay? Because if you get this right, whoop, whoop. We're getting rid of the body. I wish it were that easy. (laughs) All right. If this works the way it's supposed to work, God puts his spirit in here, and it's a capital S, and we allow that spirit to speak to our mind. And the feelings put up an awful fuss but they eventually will agree with the mind if the mind stays the course. And then the feelings in the mind will agree, and then the will will carry out the the will of the mind with the support of the feelings, eventually. This might take a while. And then we do what is right. That's how it's supposed to work. That's a simple little diagram that explains to me many, many things. Okay. So if the body's in charge, the feelings will be dominant, as the uh, arbiter of what we decide. Our mind will go into rationalization gear. 
and we will justify what we're doing, and so everything then will be harmonized, the body, the feelings, and the mind, and the will, and they'll all be harmonized together in doing what we should have known if we'd have let the mind and the spirit dominate was not right. Okay. He says that we are supposed to stir up our pure minds. Let the Holy Spirit stir up your pure mind to think properly. Let it be in control. All right? It's amazing what people can do when people aren't thinking. There was a man came through our community when I was a boy selling what he called solarama boards. And his theory was that uh, we are not uh, we are electrically out of balance, and this board, you plugged it in, put it under your mattress, and in the night, it would balance all your electricity, and your back aches and everything would disappear. I wish. <laughs> My parents bought one. My mother had back trouble, and she thought it helped her back. You know, you could do a lot of things with your mind with your illnesses, too. <laughs> When my parents were dead and gone and we were cleaning up and getting rid of stuff, here, oh, and there was a note on it that we were not supposed to take the cover off of it, that that would ruin it. Well, we didn't care at that point, so we tore the cover off, and all it was was a piece of asbestos with an electrical cord with two little things, and there was no conduction of, obviously, asbestos. I mean, it was nothing. But that man went throughout the community. There was one family of seven children. They bought one for each one of the family, $75. Well, that's not too bad if it's that kind of stuff. You just wasted some money. But if it has to do with life, that's, that's poor whenever we don't think any further than that. Stir up by way of remembrance. Reach back with your mind to the most trustworthy sources, starting here, the life of Jesus Christ, what he clearly taught, what Brother Mick was talking about, what people who've gone the, the distance, what they have to say, what they have experienced, what they have demonstrated. Get a hold of all of that that you can and do good thinking. Samuel Johnson said, it is not sufficiently considered that men require more frequently to be reminded than to be informed. We forget. The word remember is found at least 300 times in the Bible. Mindful. A mind that's full of confirmed, confirmed truth from reliable authorities. I was like Brother Mick. In fact, I, I noticed that young people don't do this, I think, as much as they did in my generation. At a fellowship meal or something like that, I would deliberately go get a chair and sit down where the old men were talking. I love to hear them talk. I love to hear them say what their experiences were and what they had learned. Listen, the prophets clearly foreshadowed the truth of Jesus. Christ came and exemplified it. The apostles gave us an authoritative interpretation of it. There is no excuse not to know the basic realities of this universe. We have been capably informed if we want to be, okay? If we want to be. The apostles were the official delegates from heaven to give us an accurate, authenticated, confirmed, authoritative statement of the truth. 
There is no authority without apostolic tradition. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. All right? We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What do they all concur in saying? Could we just give a simple message that covers everything they said? Here it is. Live holy lives in the light of future judgment. That's what they say from the first page of this book to the end. And how anybody can concoct a message that says you can live an unholy life and avoid the judgment. I say that's like reading a book and missing the point. It's the point of the whole book. Live a holy life and prepare for future judgment. Nothing new is true. You can write that down. Take that to the bank. If somebody tells you a new truth, it's an untruth. Because truth always confirms itself. That's why I think it's very important to study history and, and, and get a full scope of what many, many people have said, what many people have demonstrated, what many people have proven, what many people have taught. Just get a, a, a big a picture as you possibly can. And of course, master this. I mean, so I, I've said already, if you're only going to go with what you know in the present, listen, you can go any direction from there. I mean, there's no sense of direction at all if you're going to have only what you observe in the present. But if you can establish a point in the past, you can project with some certainty into the future. The prophets in the Old Testament didn't spend much time predicting the future. Most people think when the, the prophets, all oh, they were always talking about the future. Well, go read them. They didn't say a lot about it. They said some very significant things about the future. But they spent most of their time talking about history. This is our history. This is what we did, and this is what happened. This is what God said. This is what we didn't do, and this is what happened. That's what they spend most of their time doing. Giving a historical perspective. Here's the history. Here's where we are. And if we learn anything and draw a straight line, we'll know which way to go. That's the prophets. Never did any of them, not a single prophetic voice, give a license for undisciplined living. Not a single voice in the whole Bible. And I don't understand how people can get up and preach and convince people that they can live an unholy life when there's not one word in this book that would give any reason to say that. Paul anticipated the statement, all things are lawful. <laughs> he anticipated that statement. And he sort of mimics them. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful, but I will not be enslaved by anything. All things are lawful, but all things don't edify. I think he was mimicking the people, the, the Gnostics, who were saying, oh, everything's lawful. And Paul said, yeah, all things are lawful, but there are some things that are not expedient. All things are lawful. Yeah, there's some things that I'm not going to do because I'll become a slave. All things are lawful, but it's not going to build anybody up. So you can say all things are lawful all you want to, but if, if those other three things aren't true, what's the use? And, and besides, all things are not lawful. Make up your mind to believe 
what the whole book clearly teaches, a call to holy, godly living. So that is the decisive mind, and we must hurry. The scoffer's mind, verses 3 through 7, you can glance at those while I'm speaking. He says, no first, get it through your head, number one, (laughs) there will be scoffers. There will be scoffers. They were predicted by the prophets. They were predicted by Christ. They were predicted by the apostles. Again, we have overwhelming warning about people who scoff at the truth. Let me read one from Isaiah 28, verses 14 to 19. Wherefore, hear the word of the Lord, ye scornful men that rule this people, which is in Jerusalem, because ye have said, we've made a covenant with death and with hell, and we're in agreement When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, it shall not come unto us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hid ourselves. Isn't that awful talk? Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Judgment also will I lay to the line, and righteousness to the plummet, and the hail shall sweep away the refuge of lies, and the water shall overflow the hiding place. Then your covenant with death shall be disannulled, and your agreement with hell shall not stand. When the overflowing scourge shall pass through, then ye shall be trodden down by it. From the time that it goeth forth, it shall take you. And that's only one passage among many. One passage among many. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that wonderful passage, Christ gives four clear warnings against people who who say and don't do, for people who do great miracles but don't have a holy life, for people who don't build on his teachings. He gives four very clear warnings at the end to make sure we understand that many people will reject his message and will live the exact opposite and claim to be Christians. That should not surprise us. Jesus said it would happen. Paul said, after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. I mean, we have been warned over and over again. Remember and believe the warning confirmed by all three witnesses, Christ, the apostles, And the prophets, they all warned over and over and over again. And if you don't remember anything else I said, there is not one verse of scripture that that would support you if you say there's some way to live as you please and get by with God. There isn't one word in that book, not one word. Now you can take Paul's writings and you can rest them, like uh, Peter said, but they will contradict the obvious message of the whole book. They walk after their own lusts. They walk after their own lusts. They're driven by their immoral decisions. I bought a new Cadillac because I want to witness to the people who are the up and outs and they won't listen to me if I drive my little puddle jumper. Uh, I mean, anyway. Our morals determine our minds. Our morals determine our thinking. When I'm talking to people in the billboard line and they're giving all their reasons, I listen to, all of a sudden I hear that immorality is a big issue in their life, and then I say to them, 
You want me to remind you of something? The reason why you believe all that philosophical stuff you were just saying to me is because this is how you want to live. And this is nothing more than rationalization. And it's interesting. Occasionally they agree. Yeah. In fact, let me turn you to the scripture. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men who hold, and that word hold means suppress, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And don't look out there to those people. That is a tendency we all have. That when we have something we want, some selfish plan in our minds and some selfish goal we're trying to pursue, even as Christians, If we're not careful, and we hear somebody begin to challenge that, that's how our thinking goes wrong. It goes wrong with our moral decisions, and our thinking follows. If our moral decisions are right, we rejoice in the truth, and we hear it, and we make progress. And that is a simple principle I hope you never forget. That if you go wrong, it was because of a moral decision you made, not because of some honest intellectual consideration. There was something you wanted, and you rationalized it. And you went down a bad road. Our thinking is basically conditioned by our morals, our moral decisions. And that's what we need to learn about the scoffer's mind. Okay? He that walketh in his unrighteousness... Feareth the Lord. I'm sorry. I said, I thought this didn't sound right. He that walketh in his uprightness feareth the Lord, but he that is perverse in his ways despiseth him. Titus 3.10 in the Phillips translation. If a man is self-opinionated, our King James says heretic. If a man is self-opinionated, that's really what a heretic is. He's doing what Mick said don't do. He goes off on his own, and he's bullheaded, won't listen to anybody, and has his own ideas. And there's no place for that person in the Christian fellowship. There is no place for that mentality. If a man has that mentality, he will go wrong. If a man is self-opinionated, warn him. But after the second warning, you should reject him and listen to why. You can be sure that he has a moral twist and he is self-condemned. Did you hear that? A man who is self-opinionated, warn him, but after the second warning, reject him because there's something wrong in his moral life. And this is just a smokescreen. You can be sure he has a moral twist and he is self-condemned. 2 Peter 3.17, the passage we're looking at, talks about the error of the wicked. Do you get that connection? The error of the wicked. And then there are two assumptions made by these people. That the long delay of Christ's return means it won't happen. Since the fathers died, all things go on as always. And Peter says, they are saying the universe is stable. We call it uniformitarianism. That we can understand everything that happened in history by looking at present processes that have never changed and just trace them back. No. 
Peter says, I'm sorry. The earth had a major catastrophe one time. And it altered that. You can't, you can't reason with uniformitarianism because it hasn't been uniform. There's some things that have happened that have changed the... Pro- the and, and the fossil record... Well, in fact, the fossil record itself says there was a huge flood. I mean, if a cow dies out in a pasture and lies there uh, until dust covers it up and then finally fossil is created... Come on. If a cow dies in the pasture, his bones will be scattered before 10 years from now, probably in less than a year. It's not going to lie there until dust settles on it and it becomes a fossil. Fossils are formed by a catastrophe where animals are drowned and then piles of mud goes on top of them and the pressure of the water. And I have to remind people that talk to me, there are these fossils all over the world. I mean, that gives a pretty good evidence that there was a worldwide flood. And just to be sure that uh, you want to consider that, every civilization has had a flood story. <laughs> but they are willfully ignorant. They don't want to believe that. The distant past cannot be observed or reproduced in the laboratory. I tell people when they talk about evolution, this is not laboratory science. They, they try to give the idea if you don't believe them, you don't believe in science. I say, come on. I'm an editor of medical journals. I have two registered nurses in the family. I have a son-in-law who's a nurse anesthetist. And you say we don't believe in science, but this is laboratory science. It's science you can prove over and over again in a laboratory. You can't prove the, the origin of the universe in a laboratory. It's not going to be repeated so that you can observe it. This is philosophical, historical speculation based on a few little scientific observations that you extrapolate everything from. So, they observed the present and projected into the past to try to justify theories that are totally... I tell them, the idea that matter, mindless matter, got itself organized on its own, has to be a huge fairy tale. I mean, if you dumped a bunch of alphabets in a lake... You honestly believe if six billion years passes, somewhere in the six billion years, you could go to that lake and you could find the whole Britannic Encyclopedia just organized itself. Those alphabets just floated around and got the Britannic. There are three billion base pairs of, of uh, information on the double helix in every one of your three, 10 trillion cells in your body. The total map of everything about you physically is in that little double helix you can't even see with the microscope. And they say if you spelled that out, it would fill 500,000 pages of text. That's several sets of volumes the size of the Britannic Encyclopedia. And you believe matter arranged itself into that? Come on, don't tell me that religion is a fairy tale. This is way beyond anything that religion could have ever concocted that you call a fairy tale. This is an unbelievable fairy tale. All right, well, anyway. It's the kind of stuff I talk about to these people. And then they come up with the Big Bang Theory. They, they finally say, well, yeah, it must not have happened gradually. It must have happened. So, Big Bang. And I say to them, did you ever see a Big Bang? <laughs> did it create order? And if you look out in the universe, everything's in angular motion. Everything's going in circles. Did you ever see a Big Bang that created circles? The Big Bangs I've seen went, whee! <laughs> I mean, 
I end up saying, sir, this is a desperate science. There is abundant evidence that our universe is not a stable, closed universe. God has intervened, and not only that, but Peter says he is holding it all together until the last day. And that's interesting, too. Here is a little picture of the hydrogen atom. Two protons, two electrons. Now, you've all studied enough science to tell me these two protons we know are positively charged. So what happens? You, you, you all, all played with tricky dogs. What happens when you have two things with like charges? They repel. But these things are so tight together that you have to build an atom smasher several miles long to get things going fast enough to blow them apart. Now what holds them together with such supernatural force? And the scientists do not know. I asked Lester Showalter, my science, scientist friend, and he said they don't know. They think there must be some invisible bands holding them together. Oh, yes, right. The Bible says in him all things consist. And that word is cohere. Jesus is literally holding every atom in the universe together. And when he goes like this, what Peter describes will just automatically happen. It'll all disintegrate in a ball of fire. Well, we need to keep going. <clears throat> Things are not governed by rationalistic presumption. They're governed by divine control. And of this, they have abundant evidence I mean, I just gave you one huge evidence, but they are willfully ignorant. All right? Romans 1.20 says, The invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things which he made. Clearly seen to eyes that want to see. Okay? But the tendency is to be froward. Do you know what that word froward means? It's a contraction for fromward. See, you can go forward or you can go fromward. And there is in every one of us, if we're not careful, a tendency to say, if you tell me the sun rises in the east, I will tell you and argue bitterly that it rises in the west, because for some reason we want to go the other way. And you have to work against true knowledge pretty hard. You really do. But if it suits your moral decision, you will make the effort. Okay? <clears throat> well, let's talk about the Lord's mind. They say that uh, everything's continuing as they are, and uh, where's the promise of his coming? Well, he says one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, so that means it was only yesterday that Jesus said he's coming back again. By the way, if you study the parables, that man that went into far country and delivered his talents, Matthew 25... It says he came back after a long time. Oh, so Jesus told us that it would be a long time. Listen, the children of Israel waited 4,000 years for the promise in Genesis 3 to be fulfilled. 4,000 years. They had to hold on to that promise. 
It's only been 2,000 years since Jesus said he's going to come back, just half that amount of time. God is not slack, but it's the way he views time. Okay? He moves inexorably on his schedule, but his schedule is his concept. Well, in fact, he's timeless. God doesn't count things by time. Okay? Paul said his trials were but for a moment. He had God's perspective. Eve's timing was wrong. When she was promised a redeemer, she had her first son. She said, I got a man from the Lord. Ah, here's the promise. Here's the redeemer. Oh, dear, it was Cain. But the redeemer came 4,000 years later. Eve missed it by 4,000 years. It did happen. Why this delay? I told you because of God's mercy. I told you that yesterday. That's why in the physical world, if you disobey a physical law, you get consequences immediately. If you disobey a moral law, God gives you some mercy, and then men presume. But I want to tell you something. It's even more certain that the moral law will be executed than it is that a physical law will be executed. That's absolutely certain. You will not escape a violation of God's moral law. But he puts that delay in there. And then scoffers presume. A sin that God hates. Presumption. Scoffers are the children of time. God's people are oriented to eternity. That's their perspective. They're not impressed by time. When it's all said and done. They live in a perspective of eternity. And in verse 10, we're talking about God's way God thinks. God has given us a sure word of prophecy. He keeps his word. It was a hundred years before the flood came that God had promised to Noah. A hundred years. Imagine Noah preaching that at the beginning of the hundred years and what people said through those hundred years. <laughs> you said that 50 years ago. Come on, Noah. Get real. Well, he got real. Okay. Let God be true and every man a liar. Romans 3, 4. The day of the Lord shall come. The day of the Lord is uh, described 95 times in the Bible. There's less excuse now than ever for us to make excuses. The heavens will pass away with a roar. That's what this word literally means. And somebody has said it's a colorful, onomatopoeic word. It means the word itself sounds like its meaning. It's like the word hiss. See, that's an onomatopoeic word. Or slice. Ooh, you can just feel it. Well, this word is like that. It is a colorful onomatopoeic word which can be used of the swish of an arrow through the air, the rumbling of thunder, the crackle of flames, the scream of a lash as it descends, the rushing of mighty waters, the hissing of a serpent. He has chosen this word so that by it, he could unite many horrors into one. Everything will pass with a roar. This horrible, menacing word is the way it's going to sound. So what's the believer's mind? And we must hurry and finish here. I'll just quickly go down through this. Five qualities. Eager expectation. (laughs) Eager expectation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. 
What are three evidences that you're living with that eager expectation? Peter says, you'll be a person of prayer. Thy kingdom come, you'll pray for it. Both now and the future. Lord, we want a full realization of your kingdom. You'll preach it. The gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world. And then the end shall come. And Peter says, you'll hasten the day by holiness and righteous living. The Jews always believed that if the Jewish nation could obey the law, absolutely every person in the nation obeyed the law for one day, the end would come. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. We want to see things the way they're supposed to be. Okay? Second thing, we'll be peaceable. Jesus said if he finds you beating your brother when he returns, you're going to be in trouble. Your heart will be at peace with God and with others. There will be no known spots. You will passionately pursue spotlessness and blamelessness. You won't completely accomplish it, but God loves to see the pursuit. It's like David. David, you're not going to build the temple, but boy, I really love that you wanted to. That's God's attitude toward us. The passion for holiness passes in God's sight as the actual thing. Okay? Number, part three, number three. Evangelism will be a priority. What time, I have a cataract. What time is that? It's time to close. Well, I'll just read my notes. Evangelistic priority. We see the delay as an opportunity of salvation for everybody. Honest theology. We won't twist Paul's writings to give grace as a reason for sin. And uh, finally, unrelenting growth. Growth is the only way to overcome corruption. As soon as growth ends, corruption begins. So keep growing in grace. God's character expressed in flesh, unfolding more and more of God's glory as we represent Jesus by following him. I conclude with the statement, make up your mind. Truth is not relative. Time is not endless. Morals determine theology. Believe the prophets. Believe Christ. Believe the apostles that only holiness will wash with God. And here's a motto I put on the wall of my school, and I remember the students walking in looking at that motto, and they said, that's not right. But listen to me. I get this from E. Stanley Jones, one of my favorite writers. It's easier to act your way into right thinking than it is to think your way into right acting. I said that. Your morals determine your thinking. It's easier to act your way into right thinking than it is to think your way into right acting. And what we're talking about is you obey. That's the action. Precept. Just do what it says. And that will affect the way you think. It's easier to act your way into right thinking than it is to think your way into right acting. So just act upon God's word. Just act upon what you were told by reliable sources. Just act upon the authorities that have given you the good word of truth. Just act on it. And then you will learn to think. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Father, we thank you so much for this day. Oh God, you have made it so plain that even as the Bible says, the plowman can't err in the way. Give us all a desire to want your perfect will, not just in our heads, but in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You have been a great class, as all my Bible school classes are. I love to teach Bible school, and I'm sorry about these blank papers, but God bless you.